Good morning, beloved. My name is Brian and I serve as one of the deacons of the children's ministry. Today, as uh, Elder Caleb has introduced to us, we are actually beginning our Advent series. And our Advent series, the word Advent, it just means coming. And we'll be spending the next four weeks looking at the coming of Jesus Christ. As we anticipate the coming Christmas, we know that a son has been given to us. Now, much of the pain that we experience in this world is caused by broken promises. Marriages are broken by infidelity. Relationships can be broken by a betrayal of trust. Business deals can be broken when one party fails to meet the terms and conditions of the agreement. We live in a world where faithfulness is in short supply. Now that is why I give thanks that the God of the Bible is not anything like us. The God of the Bible is one whose words can be trusted, whose promises will certainly be fulfilled. And how do we know that? We know through His Word. And that is where I would like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17 is our text for today. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, it can be found on page 757. If you're already there, I'm sure that you would be faced with a list of names. And you might think, huh, it's a genealogy? What has a genealogy got anything to do with God fulfilling His promises? Now, let me put forth to you that it has everything got to do with God fulfilling His promises. Now, beginning a book with a genealogy might seem strange to some of you. I get that. And if you're anything like me, sometimes when we see genealogies in our Bibles, we kind of press skip and we fast forward to the next section where the story picks up. But can I encourage you? Don't. Don't skip ahead. Because genealogies serve a very, very important function to a first-century Jew who would be faced with a genealogy. This is how the New Testament begins, right? If you have opened up your Bibles, if you have a physical Bible, if you just flip one page back uh, from your current page, you would notice this thing that says, the New Testament. It is the beginning of the New Testament, the new covenant that God is making with His people. So, what does this genealogy mean? What is it meaning to say? What is its purpose here beginning the New Testament? To an ancient Jew, a genealogy serves to establish a person's rights, a person's heritage, a person's legitimacy and his rights. So what Matthew is saying over here when he begins the gospel, his gospel is that he is establishing the credentials of a certain somebody this certain somebody is so important that he's saying that, look, all of God's promises that he had mentioned in the Old Testament, all of it comes down to this one person that this genealogy points to. I invite you to look with me at how the genealogy begins and how it ends. So how it begins in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Now the word genealogy there, in the very first verse, it can be translated as Genesis or beginnings. Perhaps Matthew is saying over here, he's alluding the connection between the first book of the New Testament, 
with the first book of the Old Testament. We read of the generations. These are the generations of so-and-so in Genesis. And what Matthew is saying here, perhaps a new Genesis is at hand. One that is far, far greater than the first. And how does the genealogy end? Scoot your eyes down to verse 16. I'm going to just read a portion. And so Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now for my non-Christian friends who are here, I welcome you, right? It's really cool that you're here with us today. Now, you might be wondering, is the word Christ Jesus' surname? Now, it is not his surname, actually. The word Christ is a title. It is a title that has been given to him. The word Christos in Greek has its Hebrew equivalent, the Messiah. From long ago, God promised a messianic king that would come in the line of David. And that's what our sermon is about today. This messianic king that would come to save and deliver God's people. It is he, Jesus. He's the Christ. Verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Why the use of the word of the number 14? Now, the ancient Hebrew text, the Hebrew alphabet, uh, used to have numerical values assigned to them. So if you were to use an English equivalent, A might be 1, B might be 2, C might be 3, yada, yada, yada. For the ancient Hebrew alphabet, the name David can be represented by the number 14. DVD is, um, is uh, the Hebrew alphabets of Dalet, Vav, and Dalet had the numeral, numerical value of 4, 6, and 4. If you total this up, it comes to the number 14. And that has led what some commentators uh, have mentioned, how this genealogy, it's three times sectioning of 14 names each is pointing. Matthew is pointing that this Christ, the one who has been, has been promised to come, this one who has indeed come, he is the son of David. What I'm going to do now is that I'm going to try to take us through the Old Testament. Uh, our time for today we can look through this genealogy as a summary of the Old Testament. You might have seen this graph before in some way, shape, or form. You have the x-axis as time, the y-axis as promise slash fulfillment, as how God has blessed his people. We will see how the nation of Israel and how their story unfolds at each stages of the Old Testament. I'm going to read for us. Follow on with me in your Bibles. I'm going to read for us the genealogy let me make a few comments and then we'll read the next section of the genealogy before we dive into our text proper. Follow with me in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. You see, the two individuals that flank the first section of the genealogy is none other than the great names of Abraham and David. 
And what these two individuals represent are the great promises that God had made to, to them. These great promises were known as covenants. Now, what a covenant is, is essentially a solemn binding agreement between two parties in which there are stipulations on both sides. We'll talk about the covenants later on, but follow on with me. In the next stage, oh, sorry, before I get there, so this section of, of the Old Testament history can be summarized as promises made. God made promises to his people, all right? So that's like the first third. If you want to break up the Old Testament story into three thirds, the first third is God made promises to this individual. And then we read about what happens next in the second segment of the genealogy. We'll pick up from verse 6b, yeah? And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So this section of... The genealogy is a bit strange because it kind of breaks the pattern of who fathered who. The end of this section of the genealogy, or of this second segment of the genealogy, ends with a significant event in Israel's history, the deportation to Babylon. Some of the kings that followed King David were good, but many of them were bad. They were idolaters. They refused to listen to God's prophets, and eventually God's wrath rose against his people and he allowed the northern kingdom of Babylon to come to conquer Judah and bring his people into exile. At this point, it might seem that, you know, there was an in initial upclimb and now a downstream effect. And you might be wondering, after the deportation to Babylon, is God finished? Has God somehow forgotten or has some God somehow failed according to his promises? If you see the genealogy, it doesn't end there. The last statement after God's promises have been despised, the last, uh, the last segment of the Old Testament history where we, we pick up the genealogy is how we see God is still very much in the process of fulfilling his promises. And after the deportation to Babylon, verse 12, we pick up the story, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So the first third, we have promises made to God's people, but the second third is where God's promises were despised by his people, leading to the deportation to exile. And the last third is where God is still very much in the business of keeping his promises to his people. What this genealogy serves to show us as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, yes, it shows us continuity with the Old Testament, but it shows us more than just simple continuity that God's promises to his people continue. Our covenant-making God has come for covenant breakers like you and me. 
So let's go to God in prayer. Father God, as we come before your word that stands like a mirror, that shows us our sin, that shows us our rebellious heart, that shows us how often we have strayed far, far, far from you. I pray for all our hearts to be humble, to receive your word and the uncomfortable diagnosis that may come unto us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. To my primary five and my primary six friends, I'm so glad that you are with us here today. And I want to congratulate you. You guys have spent the last two years running through the whole Old Testament from January 2022 where we began with Genesis until your last Sunday school lesson. It was your last Sunday school lesson in the Old Testament. So I've intentionally thrown up pictures from the Gospel Project, your Sunday school curriculum, to kind of jolt your memory of what's been happening in the Old Testament that brings you to this current stage in the story when we see the first page of the New Testament. So who's this guy on the screen? This guy with his arms raised up towards heaven to the scars, to the to the sky above, none other than Abraham. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God appeared to him and he says, Go from your country. Go from your kindred, go from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And why does Abraham have his arms towards the sky like that? Well, God had promised this elderly 75-year-old man who had no children at that time, God had promised that Abraham would be made into a great nation. He would have offspring as many as that of the stars in the sky. God said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's happening here is that God is going to use this elderly, childless man and he is going to bless him and make him, in through him and through his descendants, shall God's blessings go out to the world. Now, what's so great about Abraham? Did he do anything great or deserving that God would bless him in such a way? Well, not really. Abraham actually tried to jeopardize God's plan a few times. He tried to give away his wife to another man, not once, but twice. Even there was one episode where Abraham and Sarah thought, you know, God is not getting along in his promise. We should try to help him out. And so they tried to engineer a man-made solution by asking Abraham to go and sleep with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, in order to have offspring. Is this part of God's plan? I don't think so. True enough, many years later, when God first, after God first appeared to Abraham, God indeed came true to his promise and blessed Abraham with a son. And this son's name was Isaac. That's where we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac later on had his own sons. And we see the family of Abraham continue. It was through Abraham's family that God's blessing were to go out to the nations. And we read or we, we hear some hints of how God's blessings were going to the nations if we consider that there are some Ladies, that are mentioned here in this first segment of the genealogy. Tamar and Rahab, both of them were Canaanites. Ruth herself was a Moabite. These were all external parties, foreigners, if you like. And they have somehow found their way 
into the line of Abraham's family, God's people. All right. The next stage in the scene, we come to this gentleman. is none other than King David. Now, you remember the story in 2 Samuel 7. Just now, my wife, MG, she read for us from the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 17. The story in 1 Chronicles 17 and the story in 2 Samuel 7, these two passages, can you compare it side by side? It starts out with David walking around in his palace thinking, oh, wow, I live in such a beautiful palace made of cedar. Oh, but the ark of God remains in the tent. I know what I'll do. I will make a house for God. But then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Nathan that night. And he spoke to David the very next day. No, 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 David. Nuh-uh. You are not going to build me a house. No, rather, I am going to build you a household. Listen again to the words as what God says in 2 Samuel 7. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It is in this Davidic descendant, God has promised, David, I am going to make your dynasty secure. I am going to bless one of your sons that will come from your body. It is through this descendant of yours that his kingdom will rule and reign forever. At this point, I'd like to draw your attention to what happens next. How does David actually respond to God's great promises? And I think that David's response to God's promises is very instructive for you and me. 2 Samuel 7 verse 18 records this very simple and profound action that David did. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? That you have brought me thus far? David's response of humility and gratitude, he was just so overcome by awe and wonder. God, what? who am I? Who am I? I'm so small. But who am I that God would be mindful of me? That God would be willing to bless my line and the, the sons that would follow me? What great promises these are. How can I learn to cherish them? How can we all practice sitting before the Lord, marveling at His promises? How can we just practice just being in awe of what God has done? Now, I'm going to read for us a few very familiar verses that we often hear whenever Christmas comes. Now, I invite you, do not let familiarity breed contempt. Don't let these familiar verses just go over your head. I invite you to come, sit, and behold the wonderful promises, and for those of us who know how these promises are fulfilled, let us wonder even more at the great God who has fulfilled these promises. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, but, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah chapter 9. I am so glad that it is God himself. God himself that would guarantee the fulfillment of his promises. Not us, not even David. Because what we read in the next line of the genealogy is meant to be shocking. The Bible does not hide the flaws and the sins of its heroes. And for those of you who know the story, what happens after 2 Samuel 7? Just four chapters after 2 Samuel 7, we read of David's fall from grace to disgrace. If we look back at our genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, after it says that Jesse was the father of David the king, the next line that is contained there says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's really strange, isn't it? The wife of Uriah is the only individual in this entire genealogy that is not named. Why is she not named? I have no idea. But what I think Matthew is trying to prove to us is that her name is not as important as the scandalous episode as what she represented. So those of you who know the story, right? This woman's name was Bathsheba. And what happens in that tragic story in 2 Samuel 11 is where David was walking around. He sees this beautiful woman. He summons her, gets her into his, into his house, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. And after he finds out that he was the one who caught her pregnant, he devises a scheme to get her lawful husband Uriah killed. In a very convenient accident, uh, where David has devised his military commander-in-chief to organize. And after Uriah dies, David brings this war-torn widow into his house under the guise of showing compassion to her. The chapter of 2 Samuel 7 closes with this line, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knows, God sees, and God was very angry with David. Unfortunately, from this episode, the child does not survive infancy. And David did repent of his sin thereafter. The Bible does not hide the sins of its heroes even. And even a king as great as David, we know that he too was a flawed individual. But God still chooses to bless him and to bless his descendants through the wife of Uriah. We notice that the next king that comes after David is Solomon, and he was the offspring of David and Bathsheba, the result of this adulterous relationship between the two of them. And the kings that follow, all right, this section of the genealogy is really, really interesting because we know something about the moral character of each of these individuals that's listed here. We have the biblical records. The kings and the chronicles document for us if a king was good or if the king was bad. Right? We hear of some good kings. They will have the comment that says, so-and-so did what was right 
in the eyes of the Lord. Give you a few examples. King Asaph, or we know him as Asa in the Old Testament. King Asa performed a religious reform of all the uh, idolatry and all the detestable practices of the Old Testament. He did not even spare his own mother, Meaka, who actually uh, was a product of idol worship. So that was Asa. Jehoshaphat is a very other notable mention. When he was faced with this incoming, threatening invasion by the Moabites and the Ammonites, what Jehoshaphat had done was that he proclaimed a nationwide fast. Okay, all of us, we're just going to fast and we're going to seek the Lord together. Hezekiah, another good king, he restored temple worship and he brought back a lot of the practices that the people of Judah had forgotten of old. Whatever that God had instructed, Hezekiah had brought back these practices. For example, practicing the Passover or commemorating the Passover. These good kings stand in stark contrast with the bad kings that we see in this text. The bad kings in this text usually had the command that says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. For example, Joram. Joram, after he ascended to the throne, he killed all his brothers to prevent any kind of competition to the throne. But Joram's story is quite interesting that after the command that says that Joram did evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Other kings that we see in this line, King Ahaz, he made metal images of the Baals, the idols, and even sacrificed his own sons as part of idol worship. Perhaps the worst of the lot would be King Manasseh. He erected idols and altars in nowhere else but the temple of God, the temple of God whom the Lord had said, there will my name be, here walks in Manasseh and says that I'm going to set up my own idol worship, that I'm going to worship my idols in the temple of the Lord. These kings, each of these kings heard warnings to them. Repent of your sins. Please do not go on with your corrupt practices. For example, Second Chronicles 34 records for us one such warning. Thus says the Lord, this message comes through one of his prophets. Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants and all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the kings of Judah because they have forsaken me and they have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger and with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place. This disaster was prophesied long ago. And time and time again, God had sent his messengers. For example, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied of 70 years of captivity in Babylon, 70 years of the exile. That's the deportation of Babylon that eventually happens. Jeremiah 25 tells us, the word of the Lord has come to me, Jeremiah, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, turn every one of you, turn from his evil way and his evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers. Do not go after other gods and serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servants, and I will bring them against this land, these inhabitants. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. Seventy years. God has been so kind to send prophet after prophet, warning after warning, pleading after pleading, turn from all your evil ways. But the people did not listen. In fact, the book of Chronicles closes with this very, very sad comment. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. The deportation to Babylon, the Babylonian exile, is a reminder of the brokenness and the waywardness of God's people. And I think that this sad segment of Israel's history speaks to at least two groups of people among us. First of all, it speaks to those among us who are complacent and presumptuous. Now, don't just think that if you happen to have your great-great-grandfather who was some great pastor or missionary, don't think that any kind of spiritual heritage that you might have grants you an insurance against God's wrath. We will all give an account to God for the sins that we have committed. More than just the complacent among us, it also speaks to those who continue to live in unrepentant idolatry. I'm not sure whether you have realized it or not, but God may have been speaking in your life through many means to call you to repent, to show you that you have forsaken Him, you have turned to other idols, be it love, be it money, be it work, whatever it is. But have you ignored his promises? Have you despised his word? I wonder what would have been going through the minds of the people as they were making their way to Babylon. Did they turn back and see how their smoking city of Jerusalem grew fainter and fainter in the distance? As they were making their way to Babylon, were they thinking, has God's promises failed? As we turn to the last segment of this genealogy, from verse 12 off onwards, Notice how verse 12 begins, and after the deportation to Babylon. What God is saying over here is that even after this sad segment of Israel's history, God is still not done with his people. He is still in the business of fulfilling his promises, of sending that offspring of Abraham. He is still keen to fulfill his promises of that Davidic descendant that will come from David's line and the names that follow. Okay, we, we don't really know very much about these individuals as contrast to the second segment, but what we can see is that these names have been preserved for us over here to show that God is still in the process of preserving a remnant, a remnant that through this Davidic line, God's promised king would come even though these names might not register in your memory, they hold great significance to God. Let's take a step back and take a look at who we have in this genealogy so far. Who do we have? We have murderers, we have adulterers, 
We have idolaters, all very colorful people, don't you think? But these people, these men, are not the only colorful ones in this genealogy. We have yet to talk about some of the ladies that we see. Now, it was very strange for women to be included in any kind of genealogy. And I think that Matthew is intentionally including the names of women in this genealogy to prove a certain point. Let's look at who they are. First, we come to Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. And she and Judah had an incestuous relationship between the two of them. Judah had fathered twin sons, uh, Perez and Zerah, because Tamar had dressed herself up like a cult prostitute. That was Tamar, a woman of sexual immorality. She's not the only one. Rahab is our next woman. She was a prostitute by trade. Uh, the third woman, Ruth, she was a Moabite. And the Moabite are people known for their sexual immorality. They trace their ancestral lineage all the way back to Lot, the nephew of Abraham who had incest with his two daughters. And we've already encountered the wife of Uriah, the lady Bathsheba, who had committed adultery with King David. We have some very colourful women in this text. And I'm not sure why, but against this backdrop of these four scandalous women with all their history of sexual immorality prepares us for the most non-sexual encounter of all time. The virgin birth. Mary. This is something that we hear about next week where Elder Jonathan will, will explain to us what this text is telling us about a virgin bearing a son, what sign is this? So I invite you, please come back next week and the next week and the next week to come and hear who is it that, who is this son that God has given to us? But, but just look at who we have. This genealogy isn't very, uh, I don't even have the word for it. <laughs> I mean, if, if I was God, and thankfully I am not, right, I would have thought that I would send my promised king in a family line that would be a bit more prestigious, it's kind of like, you know, you, you go to Chinese New Year and you're introducing your relatives, says, hey, come, let me introduce you. This is my aunt. She's a prostitute. Or even worse, right? You say, this is my uncle. You know, he had to get my aunt's first husband killed in order to get together with my uncle, with my aunt. That's pretty crazy, right? I, I mean, I, I don't think that would be a very nice Chinese New Year gathering. But this is exactly the family line that God has chosen to send his son, the Christ, the promised king, the promised son of David, that his throne will be established forever. This individual, Jesus Christ, is the culmination, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Yes, he has adulterers in his family line. Yes, he has murderers in his family line. This genealogy shows us that the Christ had not just come from sinners, but he has come for sinners. He has come for all of us, you and me. The gospel is for all people, regardless of your background, regardless of what shameful past you might have done, regardless of anything. The gospel invites people from all nations to come to receive forgiveness at the, fruit, at the foot of the cross. If you consider yourself like the women in this genealogy, like a Gentile or one who is morally outcast, come to Christ. He has the ability to cover your shame, 
to cover your regret, to cover all the past sins of your life. And he offers you, he holds out a newness of life that you might walk with him from this day forward. If you consider yourself and your heart has been stricken that I have been an idolater, just like all these kings of the past, come to Christ, relinquish and repent of your idolatry, come to him, repent of your sins and receive the full and free and forever forgiveness that Christ offers. For the rest of us who are faithful yet flawed individuals like Abraham and David, do lapses and breaches in your faithfulness somehow get you down? Do they discourage you in your Christian walk? Take heart that God is not done fulfilling His promises. And He has promised that He who has began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. God's promised Savior King is Jesus. And all of the Old Testament promises, they are not by accident. It is not a mistake that these things are recorded in history for us. All of these promises find their fulfillment in God's promised King, Jesus Christ. If you want me to try to rephrase the very first line of the genealogy, it would sound something like this. The book of the beginning of Jesus the Christ God's promised king who comes in the line of David, who comes in the line of Abraham, bringing all of God's promises to fruition. That is the bold claim of Matthew's genealogy. And if Jesus is the king of all of history, then he should be the king of your life. Realize his rule. Recognize your sinful estate accept your desperate need of him and surrender entirely to his rule. Let's go to God in prayer.